0: Next week at Ecclesiastes. Uh, and today we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to look at the whole passage. I'm going to read that. Uh, and so uh, I invite you to hear these words. It begins like this Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than the sacrifice offered by fools, for they do not know how to keep from doing evil. Never be rash. With your mouth, nor let your heart be quick to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you upon earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for dreams come with many cares and a fool's voice with many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay fulfilling it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill what you vow, it is better that you should not vow. Then that you should vow and not fulfill it, do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your words and destroy the work of your hands? With many dreams come vanities and a multitude of words, but fear God. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and right, do not be amazed at that matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But all things considered, this is an advantage for a land, a king for a plowed field. The lover of money will not be satisfied with money, nor the lover of wealth with gain. This is also vanity. When goods increase, those who eat them increase. And what gain has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of laborers, whether they eat little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not let them sleep. There is a grievous ill that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owners to their hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. Though they are parents of children, they have nothing in their hands. As they came from their mother's womb, so they shall go again, naked as they came. They shall take nothing for their toil. That they may carry away with their hands. This is also a grievous ill. Just as they come, so shall they go. And what gain do they have from toiling for the wind? Besides, all their days they eat in darkness, in much anger and sickness and resentment. This is what I have seen to be good. It is fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of the life God gives us, for this is our lot. Likewise, all to whom God gives wealth and possessions and whom he enables to enjoy them and to accept their lot and find enjoyment in their toil, this is the gift of God. For they will scarcely brood over the days of their lives because God keeps them occupied with the joy of their hearts. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we pray that you would be here with us this morning. Lord, Ecclesiastes is perhaps a book that not many of us are overly familiar with. Perhaps we are not drawn to us drawn to it because it does not seem to leave us with much joy. And yet we know, Lord, that it has something in there that you would have us to hear. And so I pray that you would help us to hear it today. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, uh, last week... David King preached on this, and it, he did a great job with it. I would certainly encourage you, if you didn't hear it, to go back and listen to it. And, and he talked about the fact, uh, uh, briefly, that, uh, that, that traditionally, we think that Solomon uh, wrote this. There's some question as to whether or not that's true or not, and uh, it's not really that important to me. But what is interesting, I think, is, as he says, you know, when it comes to the wisdom books that are attributed to Solomon, uh, Proverbs... Uh, Song of Solomon or Song of Psalms and this Ecclesiastes that oftentimes people attribute them to different parts of the author's age, different parts of his life, right? The Song of Solomon, if you're familiar uh, with it, is more of a a young man's song, if you will, and we're going to leave it at that. I'm not sure I've ever actually preached on that. I should, but uh, I'll make sure the kids aren't here when we do that. The... Proverbs is more the wisdom, right, of uh, of middle age, if you will, right, as David was telling us, and then Ecclesiastes. There's a sense of it being kind of more towards the end of his life, Uh, as he looks back over all of his days, he begins to see these things. Many of them are meaningless, right? And and, and and as David said, it can oftentimes feel almost curmudgeonly, uh, the author can here, right? Like he's just kind of a bit angry, and that is one way to look at it. But the way I also like to look at it is that he's tired. And he doesn't have the energy to put on false airs, to kind of blow smoke, And so as he looks back at his life, he says, you know, again and again, this is all hovel, right? Pastor Scott talked about this in the Scott and Stan video. Hovel is used, this Hebrew word, 38 times in a relatively short book. And it means smoke. It means vanity. It means meaningless. And as he looks back over his life, he realizes all those things that are absolutely meaningless. As I get older, and as I talk to more and more of our senior or seasoned saints, one of the things that... You begin to hear them talk about, as as they look back at their lives, they're like, I can't believe I wasted so much energy and time worried about this or anxious about that. Do you remember that as you look back? Some of those things that we look back to and think, oh, my goodness, that was meaningless vanity. And this is exactly what the author of Ecclesiastes is doing in the whole book. And today in the fifth chapter, he's looking at two things more specifically. He's looking at worship and he's looking at wealth. So he begins by saying, you know, when it comes to worship and it becomes, are your, you talking about the, your relationship with God? You should really listen a lot more than what you are actively trying to do. You should listen more than you talk. You should listen to God more than making vows. You should listen to God more than doing these foolish sacrifices. That you need to listen to God. Derek Kidner says this. He says, this is directed toward the well-meaning person who likes a good song and likes to turn up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with half an ear. If you want to know the wisdom of aging and the wisdom of looking back, he says, when it comes to your relationship with God, you need to start listening more to God. But of course, listening is actually not that easy. I spent, uh, as I said, four weeks of my time away. I was in Germany uh, doing German language school. Now, whenever I tell people that, uh, they always want to know this question, why? Why in the world are you trying to learn German? Why does that make any sense at all? Isn't it kind of dumb? They don't say that, but you can tell they feel it. And my answer, for some reason, never satisfies because I say, well, just because. I really don't know why, but I just love trying to learn it. And when I applied for this sabbatical grant uh, 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 for for this whole uh, time away so that they would pay for some of it, I just said, you know, basically learning a foreign language, there are a few things as helpful as learning a new language to slow you down. Right? Which oftentimes then also includes then beginning to learn or remember what it is to listen. And that's exactly what occurred over those four weeks. See, during those four weeks when I would go, if I would go into a restaurant or into a bakery or or into a bike rental shop or or wherever I would go, in those times, and it happened many times a day, several times a day, you know, I would walk in and I would always begin by saying this. First of all, I would say this, look, I'm trying to learn German. I would say this in German. I'm trying to learn German. Please do not speak to me in English, right? Because they're very efficient. They don't like wasting time with Americans. I get it. But I say, please, just German. Right? And they would usually say, okay... And then, like an athlete preparing for a race, I would kind of lean in and that person would have all of my attention. Because what I knew is if there was any chance at all that I was going to understand him or her, the only way for me to do it was to listen with everything that I had. So I would sit there and I would stare at them and I would try to cut out every distraction. And as he or she was talking, I would stare at their mouth in the hopes that that would give me some clues I was reading all of their body gestures to see if it would tip me off as to what they were saying. I would look to see, are they pointing to something? And if so, what are they pointing to? I was even listening, you know, as I was standing in line when they were talking to other people. I was listening, what should I expect? What might they say or might not they say? Do they say it in a way that it's clear it's a question or an answer? It's always awkward when you get that wrong, you know, and they're clearly waiting for something and you just smile. And I would oftentimes have, have to say, not so fast, or "or, or you know, one more time, please. Say it again. But I gave them everything. When I go in here to a store, I hardly listen at all. I don't have to. It's just in English. It's very easy. When I was there, it was like everything I could do. So by the time the day finally got over, at nighttime, I was exhausted. I mean, I slept incredibly well every night because I was so tired. Why? Because it was everything I could do all day long just to listen with everything I have. This is what it takes to understand at all a foreign language. And I think it's actually very true when it comes to beginning to listen to God. Because God, in many ways, is speaking as something of a foreign language to us. There are few of us to whom God comes and just says something out loud in English to you. No, no, no. Oftentimes it is only by our beginning to learn, and that takes an incredible amount of intentionality. The truth is this. It is much easier just to talk to God than to listen to God. It is much easier just to make some kind of great vow before God or to do some kind of great sacrifice. And we do it, right? Like, God, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to do that? Great, we'll do that. And we don't even create any space for there actually to be time to say, maybe God wants to speak to us. Why? Because it is so much easier. It takes a ton of work to begin to create space in your life so that you can then finally begin to actually listen to what God may be saying to you. Alan Fadling, who was here last summer and preached uh, uh, one Sunday for us, Uh, when he talked about kind of his own journey uh, to listening, he he says this, he says, The practices of solitude, silence, and listening to God started to slow me down and enabled me to focus my attention more and more on coming to Jesus and following him rather than talking about Jesus and slaving away for him. The focus was less and less on our activities for him and more on our attentiveness to him, on walking with him and on working with him. You see, it's a subtle difference, but it is a clear difference between saying, I need to foolishly work for God. I'm going to do all these great things for God. I'm going to talk to God. And and, and working with God, being attentive to God to God. When Solomon looks back, when he looks back at his life, he's like, oh, I've wasted so much time doing all these great activities for God, and I have not spent enough time simply being still and being attentive and being with the Almighty. But it is not easy for us. How do we begin to actually listen to God? If we want to live different countercultural lives, if we want to live, what does it mean to be a Christian? We have to begin to create space and listen to God. How do you hear God? You know some of these. The easiest way, of course, is what? Is to read Scripture. This is the easiest way for us to hear God. This is the foundational way for us to hear God. When I was in, um, when I was in Germany, I was in Berlin two Sundays, and I went to this worship service uh, that was geared toward those who were learning German. It was genius, really, those who came up with this idea. And so we would go, and of course, one of the ways that they would do it is just by speaking kind of easy English, or easy English, that would make it even easier. Easy German, right? So they were using simple words. This is why some translations and paraphrases, I know some of you don't like the message, but I I like it, and and part of the reason is because it's just simpler, and it allows us to kind of understand it a little bit easier. The other genius thing that they did is they basically, they said almost everything that they said, they put up on a screen so that you could read it. It is much easier to read a foreign language than it is to hear the foreign language, right? And this is in many ways is what scripture is. God knows. It's hard sometimes to be able to just hear God amongst everything else. And so you can read the actual words and this is always the foundation of how we begin to listen to God. But there was also this reality that after that, or as a part of that, if we want to be able to discern the spirit that's leading in our life, if we want to be attentive to God, we have to also learn other ways to listen. And one of the greatest hindrances to that, you know this, is distractions. There is far too much noise in our lives. Last allusion to learning German, I think that's right. When I was sitting there in the classroom, and they did a video up on the screen that was all German, I would ask... I was the old man. Everybody else was 20. It was super awkward. In fact, I'm convinced after the very first day as I was walking downstairs, one of the 20-year-olds said to the 19-year-old, what is he, 100? (laughs) I may have misheard him, but I'm pretty sure uh, that's exactly what he said. It was weird. So I was the weird guy, but I didn't care. Because, again, once you get older, you're like, I don't have time for all this other stuff. So I was like, could you please shut the windows? Because I always had the windows open because Germans don't believe in air conditioning. And so I said, can you please shut the windows? Why? Because there was all this noise going on out there. And I needed to shut off every single distraction if there was any chance that I was going to hear this foreign language and understand it at all. We have so many distractions. You know these. Social media, Facebook, television, Netflix, the radio, politics, sports, our own busyness, all of those distractions. And I am here to tell you this. You will likely never hear God as long as you never create intentional space to shut the windows and to shut everything down and simply be still. Even that is awkward. How do we do that? With more than just wishful hoping that someday maybe we can be still. Well, Of course, it takes creating other habits. Uh, uh, You may have read the book Atomic Habits. I I found it to be interesting. One of the suggestions they make is if you want to begin a new habit, one of the best ways to do it is to attach it to a habit that you already have. Right? I've talked about how for so long, it's not very good. I'm preaching to me here. I'm not very good at just being still and listening. And so finally, over the last two or three years, I've gotten better. And the way that I got better was I did. I didn't know I was doing this, but I attached it to another habit. I attached it. This is, you know, this is not uh, groundbreaking here. I attached it to the habit of drinking coffee in the morning. Every morning for the last decade or so, I have made coffee for my wife and I. And I've gotten it, and you don't have to think about it anymore, right? You get up, you make the coffee. It's easy. That's what you do. It's not really so much a habit, it's just what I do now. And so now, as I make the coffee every morning, what I've begun to do is every morning, then I go and I sit down on my chair. If it's cold, I, I have a fireplace on. If it's not, I wish it was cold so I could turn the fireplace on. And I sit there and I am just still. And every day now, not every day, most days, let me be honest, I have that coffee and immediately I think about being still and being quiet. And I simply have attached it to another habit. Another thing that I've begun to do over the last few years is when I go into a dentist's office or a doctor's office, I refuse to look at my phone. And there are hardly any magazines anymore. Remember, they used to have magazines. They don't have them anymore. Why? Because everyone has a phone. And so I intentionally, especially with the doctor's office, I go and I do that, especially when I get into the doctor's room. I mean, I do it both in the waiting room and there. Um, A, you always know there's going to be a lot of time. (laughs) But I also do it because those moments are actually pretty anxiety-inducing for me. When I get into a doctor's office, I don't care what I'm going in for. It could be the smallest of things. It could be a toenail that's gone awry. I don't know what it is. Whatever it is, usually by the time the doctor finally comes in, I'm pretty convinced there's something else wrong with me. I mean, look, at all those posters that are all around the office, why do they put those in there? By the time the doctor gets in there, I'm like, I got all of them. <laughs> Tell me how long I got. But I, but I began to choose to kind of take that moment and say, no, I'm not going to go to the phone. I want to do that because I know why I want to do that. I want to distract myself. I just want to. So, no, this is an anxious moment. And so in these moments when you're most vulnerable are some of the best moments to say, what is important? No matter what, I'm a child of God. I'm loved by God, as that song just said. And there are these great opportunities. But when I go in there, I immediately, when I now go into the doctor's office, I think, okay, I'm going to be still before God. So attaching these habits so that we can begin to listen to God. Because we are a people of doers, and we will almost always, if left to our own devices, just begin to talk work for God, do all of these things rather than being attentive and working with God. Then Solomon moves on. Ecclesiastes moves on and says, well, now I want to talk about wealth. Now, I know, again, as soon as we talk about wealth, people get upset. Oh, we're talking about money again. And, you know, it's it's always funny to me. And uh, you know, I, I, we, we talk about it all the time, of course, as I've always said, because it's all over Scripture. It's everywhere. And we don't want it to be there because we have this foolish idea that if we've heard it once, especially when it comes to money, look, I get it. And I think it's kind of like, like having this thought that, you know what, I did, I did 10 push-ups one day. I don't ever need to do them again. I have a great physique now because I did push-ups one day. Does anyone think that by doing push ups one day, all of a sudden you've developed the muscle and all of a sudden it's just going to stay there like that? That's not the way it works. And it's the same with wealth. Wealth is just going to sit there, it is active and it is constantly attacking in one way or another. And you have to be smart about how we deal with this. We have to continually be reflective. How is money shaping my life? How is money shaping? who I am and my faith in God. It's constant. You will never get to the point where you don't have to think about it again, or at least I have not ever met someone who never has to think about it. Why is it? Well, because here, again, the author tells us many different reasons. There's so many things that wealth can do. It never satiates you. You always think, don't you, if I just had this number, have I always had a number? Maybe it was when you were 20 or 30 or 40. I have a number. If I reach that number, whew, then and you reach that number and guess what that number has jumped on you and it's even further ahead than what you thought and you're constantly going for that number if you're looking for wealth to finally for you to reach a point where you can breathe and be content and if you're looking for wealth to do that for you I promise you you will never reach that point verse 12 says here's the thing about wealth people who are wealthy they don't sleep very well Now, commentators wonder, well, why exactly is that? Why is that the case? Well, you know, some think, well, it's because you eat too much. Wealthy people eat too much, and when they do, they don't sleep very well. That's, there's probably some truth to that, I suppose. But others think, well, you know, it's because of this fact that when you start having money, what do you begin to worry about? That you're going to lose it. I was thinking about that with the stock market. You know, in 2008, the stock market, I mean, it went down, it was like 50% or something like that, it went down. I don't remember, but you know what? Do you know how much sleep I lost over the stock market? Do you know how anxious I was about that? Not at all, because I'm a good Christian. <laughs> That's not the reason, because I got news for you. When stocks go down half and you now only have $5 in your stock portfolio, it's not a big deal. And that's literally the truth. I had early anything. So, I, I mean, I really did not, I heard other people fretting about it. I did not fret. But now you're, now we're here in 2022, right? And slowly but surely, I've got a little bit more money there now, not as much as my planner thinks I should have. Goals. But I can tell you my portfolio is down 18.763% right now. And I look at it, and I feel it now. And I had never felt it before. And it's the weirdest thing, right? 2008, be like, man, if I have that much money, I'd be great. Woo! And then you get it, and all you do is like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to lose at any moment now. This is the worst. Why? Because we're asking money to do something it was never intended to do. It was never intended to bring you peace and contentment. So then Solomon continues, right? He says, oh, you know, anybody who hoards money, when you do that, oh, you will, you, it will always harm you. That when you become wealthy, you begin to eat in darkness. In other words, you are alone, you are angry, people get sick, they become resentful. All of these things, the author of Ecclesiastes says, all of these things happen when you begin to get more money. It's really kind of depressing in many ways. I mean, again, David did a great job of saying there are a few Hallmark cards that come out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Verse 18 says that we're only given a few days in this world. That's our lot. And then earlier in the passage, he says, you know what, here's the thing about the wealthy. You should know, as you came from your mother's womb, so too will you go again when you die, naked as they come. Aren't you glad you came today? (laughs) Last week when I was kind of wrestling with this passage and um, the word naked came up, I couldn't help but think about our return trip from Germany. On the return trip from Germany, we had flown Iceland air, and so we, uh, we got to stay a couple nights in Iceland on the way back. It was great. Uh, we could only stay a couple nights because we, we genuinely would have had no money left if we stayed any longer because it is so expensive. And, and so we had a great time, uh, and we went on this wonderful tour um, um, where you got to see um, a, a geyser and a beautiful waterfall and just kind of the rugged nature of Iceland. I know several of you have told me you, you've been there. It's a it's it's very strange, kind of cool, exotic place. But then later on in the afternoon, we decided we wanted to kind of go off the tourist train if you wanted to. We wanted to be a local, and so I had read that uh, one of the things that's really big in Iceland are their swimming pools, um, and so there are some touristy kind of lagoon-like cool swimming pools, but those uh, we, didn't, we didn't do. Um, um, we wanted to, to be a local, and so they have like 17 of these pools, uh, and they're all kind of thermal heated, right, because Iceland's basically just a bunch of volcanoes, and so they have all this hot water, and, and the average high in July is 55 degrees in Reykjavik, and so that's not the most fun if it's a cold water, and almost all of them, all but one, are outside, and so we said, okay, we want to do this. Girls, you want to go to a pool? We're going to be locals today, and because they're kind of just watering holes for people. They come, and they talk, and our girls are like, woo, let's go. We love the pool. We said, okay, but I'd also done some reading to know that there is one very unique difference between American pools and Icelandic pools, and that is that before you go into the pool, uh, men have one uh, locker room area, women have another, and you have to bathe, and you have to bathe Naked. This gets even quieter here. Uh, um, and, and they're very clear. You have to do that. This is how you have to wash. All those things because they want you to be clean. And when we told our girls that, they were like, whoa, and they were like, whoa, what? <laughs> and we're like, I want you to know this before we go. It is men's and women's. And then you put a bathing suit on. Megan was concerned that you guys were going to think we'd become nudists. You put bathing suits on before you go into the pool. Let's be clear. And there's an unwritten rule, as I read, which makes it feel like it's not quite as unwritten, but an unwritten rule that says you don't look at people when you're in there. Just get clean, put your bathing suit on, get in the pool. Which apparently a couple of the kids, Megan told me later, didn't take seriously enough. Not the two that are in here, the other two. And I'll say the same at that service. So I was out in the swimming pool, and I was waiting for a while. I was like, man, what's was taking those so along. they finally came. And when I saw them, I knew they were changed. <laughs> they, of course, immediately wanted to tell me everything that they had seen. And I was like, I don't need, I don't, I don't want to know it now. I don't want to know whatever. Just shh. But Megan and I kind of talked about it later. And here's one of the gifts of that. Which is that one of the things that it made our our girls, as young as seven at this point, very clear, is that we all come in our own different shapes and sizes. And that aging does things to people. And that there are scars that we try to hide and all these other things. But when you were there in that situation, that highly vulnerable situation, there was nothing but our real selves. They saw the bare naked truth. This is what happens in life. This is the reality of the world. But we do everything we can with our clothing and with products that we buy and with the way that we wear a jacket to cover up something that we don't like about ourselves. Or maybe we put a bag over here to make sure that nobody can see us. Or, we, or maybe we pop up the collar if we have a scar that we don't want people to see. We don't want them to see any of our imperfections or our flaws. We want to try to fool them by the clothing that we wear. We do everything we can to make sure that nobody can actually see what we really look like. But then the reality, of course, is this this is what ends up happening no matter what. And I think in many ways, wealth and the way that we use it is oftentimes like clothing that we wear to try to hide from others the reality and the honesty of our lives. We try to do everything we can. We think if we have enough wealth, if we use it in just the right ways, that we can distract everybody from the realities of the world. If we buy enough products, or if we put on the right younger-ish kind of clothing, then we will keep looking younger, and we can stave off death. It will never come. Or we think, oh, we're going to go on enough vacations, and we're going to keep going on these vacations. And the more glorious, the more fantasy-like, the better. Because we think if we can do that, then we can be distracted from the real world, from the job that we may not like, from the relationships that we have that are broken, from the struggles of the world. Let's just go from one vacation to the next. Let's plan the other one while we're on the first one, so that we never have to think about the realities of life. we just putting on, or oh, if we can just eat enough, or drink enough, or buy enough stuff, if we just have enough stuff, then it will distract us from the reality that our lives are fleeting. You will die. I don't care how much wealth you have. It is all vanity. And every time we go on another vacation in hopes that we can forget reality. Every time we buy something else to try to keep being as young as possible so that death may not come. Every time we do that, old man Solomon shakes his head and says, Hebel, it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. You are not fooling anyone. You will Die. Amen? No, I'm just kidding. Not yet. (laughs) Because I want to point out, there's one other thing about this. Yes, Solomon says these things are meaningless. But in verse 19, if you heard it, he also says this all to whom God gives wealth and possessions and whom he enables to enjoy them and to accept their lot and find enjoyment in their toil. This is the gift of God. In other words, perhaps the answer is not to try to hide from the reality that our life is fleeting on this earth. But is to begin to see that actually understanding that might just be a gift to beginning to enjoy it. This is what William Brown says about this. He says this. He says, like darkness enhancing the weak radiance of a candle, death serves to highlight rather than extinguish those all too fleeting moments of joy. While death devalues life defined exclusively in terms of gain and self-enrichment, it nevertheless heightens the value of these simple gifts. In other words, by understanding and acknowledging the fleeting uh, 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 life or our fleeting days of our life, by understanding death and not hiding from it or acting like it's going to happen, you can. We should then be able to actually enjoy these things more than if we continue to try to act or act or hope that our money or wealth can stave those things off or can fill a void that they cannot fill. Let's go back for just a moment to the swimming pool. One of the things that came out of that in our conversations is this. Man, we spend a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of emotional energy trying to do everything we can to hide from every single one of our, our physical imperfections, our physical aging, our, 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 those things that we are embarrassed about, right? I mean, we do. Like I've got these two corners right here, as my daughters like to point out, and they keep going back. And one day when they meet, there will be a great celebration. But I look at it, and I look at pictures, and I'm like, man, can you comb forward just this much? And I'm like, oh, and I see all of the energy and the time that we spend on this. And you know what? I'm not going to get graphic here. But, man, when you're in that locker room, you're like, we're all going there. No matter what. You could be like a chiseled young Arnold Schwarzenegger, and one day you will look like that. You could be chiseled like the Pillsbury Doughboy. And one day, you'll just be bones. It is coming, but now here's the thing. I can either be so worried about this, we can either do every single thing to act like that's not going to happen, or we can just simply enjoy the bodies that God has given to us. Yes, this thing is coming back, but you know what? I can still move my head. I can still see. I can still eat and breathe. Why don't I just enjoy this? It's meaningless to think think that it's not going to happen how much time do we waste vanity what about wealth we can enjoy our wealth please hear me i've said this before i don't know if you really believe me i think it's okay to take vacations i just got back from being gone for almost two months it is amazing but enjoying it means that you don't expect it to fill some void in your life Don't go on vacation thinking, oh, I'm going to live like this for so long that I never have to think about just how hard life is, or this is going to fix all that that ails me, or if I just drink enough, which so many in our community think, if I just drink enough that I never have to think about those things. No, no, no. It will never do that. What it does do is when you begin to see wealth differently, I'm going to enjoy this, and I know it's fleeting. Then you begin to see everything looks brighter. You see God's creation. You enjoy the quiet times because you're not worried, oh, if I have too much Quiet on my vacation, I'm gonna start thinking about the real world. No, no, no. You just begin to enjoy it, it begins to taste better, everything begins to look better. When you see wealth in this way, guess what? You begin to become more generous because you're not worried about it. I'm convinced and I think it's subconscious, but I'm convinced that there are some of us who have wealth and we are afraid to give it away because we we almost literally think every dollar I give away, that's one day less I'm gonna have. Because if I have enough money, it gives me security to think I'm gonna keep living forever. And what you begin to see is as you begin to be generous, all of a sudden you're giving new life to other people. You're beginning to see the joy in their lives. And all of a sudden, your toil, the fruit of your toil, you begin to see the gift in it. But we have to allow wealth not to serve some purpose. It was never intended to serve. See, I think as followers of Jesus That what our wealth and and what, what, what this passage, what it should draw us to, it should not draw us to despair. Because you know that it's coming. Instead, it should allow us to savor these moments. To create space to be able to just listen to God. To be attentive to the Almighty. Rather than thinking we always have to work for Him to be able to create enough space to begin to see the fruit of our labor and the way that in so many ways, yeah, we're not going to take it with us. It's not going to solve everything that ails us. And yet it can be enjoyed without guilt. It can be enjoyed for what it is, the fruit of your labor. So my hope and my prayer is that as we continue, that we can be a people who understand the reality of death and how so much that we focus on, as Solomon says, so much is meaningless. And yet a life that is followed by looking at Christ, the eternal one, is a life that can help us to begin to simply enjoy these fleeting days of our lives. Point to the one with whom we will live forever and the one who is not meaningless. May that be our prayer. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the wisdom of our elders. Though we may not always want to hear it, give us the courage to listen to them Give us the courage, Lord, to face the realities of the world that we then can see more clearly that which is meaningless and that which brings true meaning and life and hope. And so doing, God, we will not reach the day of our deathbed and look back and just say, oh, it was all vanity that I lived for. But we can begin to see how we walked with God, how we brought life and hope to others. It's in your name we pray. Amen.